This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. And one of the most powerful and disturbing findings is the physical amount of time teachers in teams get to meet is the single largest predictor of collective efficacy or capacity. Just that alone. That's Dr. Pete Stebbins reflecting on the factor of time and the impact it can have on the effectiveness of how teachers meet with one another. Pete is my guest today on Central Station. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. Dr. Pete Stebbins has over 20 years experience as a keynote speaker and facilitator. He's a published author of books on leadership, resilience and change, and also a guest psychologist on Australian television's Channel 7. I caught up with Pete to work through some of the key points of the most recent edition of his book titled Leading Flourishing Schools, Building High-Capacity School Culture. It's a title that's filled with promise and followed up on the very first page with a quote that's, well, quite confronting. Pete's thesis centres around the idea that school culture can have a massive effect on the capacity of staff and students, and that the odd unicorn encounter can make a life-changing difference to any school student. I started by asking Pete about what he really means by the notion of capacity, why it's so important, and how it can impact well-being and the performance of teams in schools. Let's start with your opening comment, uh, and this is a comment that's right at the beginning of your book, and I really quite like it because it is—it's a—it's a comment that's easy to read over, but it's actually quite controversial and confronting. The crux of the matter for flourishing schools is the extent to which their school culture increases the capacity of staff and students. Now, there's a lot in that statement, but the one—the piece that I want to focus on is capacity. What do you mean by capacity? Terrific. Thank you, Colin. And capacity is, uh, if you look it up in the, well, if you look up another word in the dictionary called efficacy, which a lot of educational researchers use, the definition of efficacy itself is the capacity to produce a desired result. And so efficacy and capacity are effectively the same thing. Uh, and we use the fuel in the tank or uh, how full your cup is, how much energy is in your cup. Uh, and so I guess to really um, create a uh, perhaps oversimplistic view, we would see capacity as your available energy to teach or as a student, your available energy to learn. I think you're going to run into some problems there straight away if you say to a teacher, I, w- I want to know about your available energy to teach. I suspect- well, that's why we use the word capacity. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you're going to get a, a wide spectrum of responses there. But again, that's the point, right? Uh, if we think about the system we're in right now, it's draining people's capacity. Uh, and the crux of the matter is about whether or not the way leaders run their schools whether or not that is diminishing or draining energy out of their cups or is putting energy back into their cups. Well, I have a feeling that the current time, as in the current date, 2022, or you know, recent history has a lot to do with that. So let's wind back the clock a little bit. And I just wanted to get you to share your firsthand story of the unicorn teacher. I quite like that illustration because clearly all those years ago, that wasn't a problem. That person's capacity wasn't a problem. Can you, can you recall that for us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, again, this idea of, uh, I think Rita Pearson talks about uh, a champion teacher. 
Uh, but we take that, I guess, a whole other layer up and we talk about unicorns, i.e. the magic of a, a certain type of teacher that connects with you in your life. So, yeah, 1987 for me, uh, I was in grade eight uh, and I had this teacher, Dr Slade, a math teacher. Uh, and, uh, again, I was not an academic kid. Uh, a lot of my report cards, they literally hand wrote how disappointed they were in me, how I lacked the will to work hard. Um, it was a kind of somewhat cruel system. Uh, but I had one teacher that decided to look beyond that uh, and really uh, took it upon himself uh, to uh, test the limits and see if he could move beyond my uh, minor and major misbehaviour and, and literally make me learn. And the long and the short of that, which we talk about in the book, was, was it was the first time and indeed one of the only times I ever got an A uh, during my secondary years. Uh, but the fruits of discipline, hard work, and perseverance allowed me to then get a PhD and do what I do now. Uh, so that teacher in that moment uh, was able to tune in, persevere and deepen their commitment, uh, have the capacity to produce the desired result. Uh, and I, in fairness and truth, came along for the ride somewhat begrudgingly, but I quickly caught on and really started to value that experience. So can you remember what it was about that teacher? Were there any... Uh key characteristics, things that really stood out to you that, that would give you an idea? Like Looking back, it's probably easy to say, oh, well, that teacher had those things. But when you were in the moment, were there things that you could look at in your teacher and say, what? Oh, this teacher has this or they have this, which is helping me to achieve better? Well, yes. And that's a really uh, getting to into the crux of this. Um, what we know is that any person, perhaps you've got one too. Not everybody has these stories, but a lot of people do. And when they have those stories, even if they're misfits and dropouts like me, just one of those encounters in your life can really trigger some resilience and some um, sow some seeds that later on blossom. So jumping back to what you're saying, we're desperately interested then in this what we call unicorn effect or unicorn encounter. Uh, and we see that there's kind of really two um, archetypes or prototypes of unicorn teachers in terms of how students experience them. Where one of them is called the, the fairy godmother or the, or the fairy godfather, which is really <laughs> that encounter with a teacher that um, you just feel a sense of warmth and connection to. And you just gravitate into their beautiful, caring aura and you just feel all warm and excited and learning and escalates. The other um, prototype or archetype of unicorn teacher, we call it the drill sergeant. Um, and so <laughs> that's the type of teacher that, I guess, challenges you or takes you on or, or uh, uh, walks through the learning pit with you and puts up with your resistance and keeps you going. Um, and so my unicorn teacher was this Dr. Slade, uh, very much the, the drill sergeant figure in my life. Uh, but jumping back to what you're raising, this is the heart of the matter, and I'll pause in a sec because um, there's so much to unpack in here. How that occurs is obviously through the teacher and their characteristics, but it also occurs through the environment of the school and whether or not that um, suppresses the teacher's ability to provide that level of magic to the students or increases the ease at which they can provide that level of magic in those teaching moments to their students. Well, you, so I kind of want to go both ways on this. What, what about the teacher as an individual and then what about a school? But, but back to you. Well, you talk about uh, in your book four big support systems for high-capacity school cultures. So let's dive into that now. Uh, and I want to focus on two of them in this discussion. 
and we might come back to the other two in a, in a separate conversation. But um, we'll start with the one about maximizing whole school well-being. Now, well-being is one of those things that you just hear talked about around the place and it's kind of, oh, well-being is important, well-being is this, well-being is that. And you make the distinction that there is well-being, but there is well-being in school. So something very special. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, Colin, you're right. Um, if ever, as you say, in 2022, if ever there was a buzzword that is potentially competing for the number one spot in our education sector, well-being would be one of those key catchphrases. Um, and so my background is a clinical psychologist um, with a master's and PhD in clinical psychology. So kind of well-being, I feel um, somewhat um, able to speak about that in, the, in that sort of sense. Uh, well-being, the problem with well-being as a construct, though, is um, there's a hundred different definitions of well-being. And when you get educators together and say, let's talk about well-being, um, you're going to get um, a lot of different answers. And this is really interesting, you know, in the same way when I, as a clinical psychologist, I could easily talk to you about well-being and about what is uh, normal uh, subclinical stress, mental health problems. And then on the other side of that, what is highly resilient? So it's kind of like a messy bowl of pasta right now, how we use well-being in, in organisations, let alone in the organisation of a school. But to cut a long story short, um, we say well-being is contextual. And again, a number of educational um, researchers are using that idea. That's not a new idea. Um, and so we say, look, if you're in the construction industry and you're um, wanting to lift the well-being of your workforce, your recipe, your definition of well-being would relate to your industry. So manual handling, um, um, safety things, operating machinery. Um, there'd be quite a big, I guess, a word salad of what it means, but yeah. it'd be somewhat tied to the, the job requirement. Uh, if you're an administration officer uh, working in a um, corporation, in a, in a desk-based job, your definition of well-being is going to be different. So we take that idea and we simply go to schools and we say, okay, what's unique or special or what's the context of schools? And so for, for, for staff in a school, well, well-being is ultimately around quality teaching and teamwork because they have to work with one another and work, deliver teaching and learning. And then we can come up with a, a whole recipe of that. And then with students, of course, the same thing. Well, what, what's well-being in their context? And that's uh, about, well, what, what are the conditions? What has to be optimised for them to learn really well? So we talk about well-being for teaching, well-being for learning, and we put those two th overlapping things together in overlapping circles, and we say that's whole school well-being. So there's a diagram in your book which places uh, student capacity next to staff or teacher capacity, and I, I suspect that we can then drill down a little bit further there. So there's student well-being, teacher well-being. It seems to me that uh, and I want to focus on the, again on the capacity thing. It seems to me that teachers these days, and we've referred to the year 2022, and you know, time is always moving forward, technology, all the rest of it. Seems to me that teachers are using up their capacity at a faster rate than arguably than ever. <laughs> so, what can schools realistically do? Let's see if we can dive into some of the really practical stuff about what they can realistically do about. Main, or controlling that or reversing that? Is this just an endless argument without any real resolution? Uh, the good news is no, it's, it's not an endless argument. It's very much controllable. And so 
if we stay with um, well-being for teaching, and that includes teachers and support staff, we already know what the model for that is because we have um, Professor John Hattie's work, which talks about a construct known as collective teacher efficacy or CTE. And the research says when that's working well, you have an effect size of 1.57 on student learning. So if you take it like an empirical scientific point, you say, okay, if we can make collective teacher efficacy go great with our teachers, we are doing the single most valuable thing empirically to, uh, that they can contribute to students flourishing. So we simply unpack what CTE is, and there are four things that have to happen to improve collective efficacy. And again, collective capacity, efficacy and capacity being semantically the same construct. Yeah. Uh, and so now we get really concrete because uh, one of those things is, I'll give you the kind of more um, lay terms of it. One of them is about job satisfaction. Okay, master experience, like being clear on what I know and don't know. Another's around um, social persuasion, like having the time to have uh, feedback and listen and be up to date with what's going on. Another is about what they call vicarious experience. We just call it peer support, is being safe enough to hang it out there and share what's going on. Uh, and then the last one's about effective states, Albert Bandura's research we're referring to here. And that's simply about um, either being able to contain what's going on with your work-life pressures or leaking it out and kind of causing trouble everywhere. Um, so you've got a really concrete recipe about what uh, well-being for teaching is, collective teacher efficacy. You've got four very concrete things that are either going well or not going well within teams and schools. Um, and that's where our work takes off because it's very easy then to change up how certain behaviour patterns happen, how the school runs within, you know, within its normal operating cycle to either increase that stuff or, unfortunately, um, de accidentally diminish it, make it even harder. So when you front up to teachers and start talking about these concepts and say, look, th this is the concrete heart of the matter. Let's start working through this. What, what sort of reactions do you get? Do, do people go, oh, really? <laughs> this sounds like hard work. <laughs> um, very rarely. Um, and again, I guess in, in our conversation today, I'm, I guess, describing it, you know, in that leadership academic kind of lens, um, what we do with teachers is we start by um, introducing the idea of, um, students flourishing and introducing the idea of the unicorn teacher tell, telling my story. But more importantly, my story is simply a window into them being able to share their stories. And, and people have stories to tell, you know, and it inspires them and it's a deep uh, personal truth, whatever happened to them. Um, and so from there, then we introduce how that works. Um, so it becomes quite a logical chain for people and quite exciting because there's so much outside our control in education. But yet there's so much inside our control once we know the bits we want to play with, you know. The power of story is is really quite significant. And I just want to mention something that we talked about briefly offline, and that was the fact that the um, that teaching effectively or the profession effectively has a brand problem. And just a moment ago, you mentioned the idea of job satisfaction. Is there a way that we can more effectively combine those three factors of job satisfaction, the brand issue, and teachers sharing stories of success or powerful success with their students or just overall school success to to somehow underpin a, a flourishing culture? Yeah, well, job satisfaction, remember, that's one of the four. And so we take Albert Bandura's original measures, like vicarious experience and social persuasion, all these academic things, and then we create process measures and say it's about job satisfaction, it's about feedback. 
It's about peer support and it's about um, understanding and having each other's backs during the hard times of the teaching term and year. Uh, and so it's about uh, if we fix all four of those things up within a team of teachers and then systemically in a school, um, we um, do the best form of brand uplift we can, which is positive word of mouth, right? People yep. start to really love their job. They pe- people feel supported within their teams and leaders. Yep. Uh, and we're not, they're not just satisfied with their job. They're enriched. They're having the feedback. They're feeling the connections. Uh, and work's probably the least stressful thing in their lives. So it's it's attacking those four things uh, and it's doing it incrementally and, and in a discovery mode or an inquiry mode uh, with teachers. And um, again, as long as we introduce that in a way that's manageable, we do these little, what we call 10-minute team boosters. We have tiny little bite-sized activities they can do in our pulse system so they can uh, map their own journey and have their own well-being narrative in each team. Uh, it's it's really encouraging. I don't think, as we were talking about offline, I, I think some of the bigger systemic things around, particularly in Australia, about the government's view about the adequacy of certain teachers, about uh, Australia's need to compete with PISA, and 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 I don't know that that stuff's in anyone's control at our level. Um, but I do believe the way the school culture runs, the way teams work, I believe that's very much at our level, and there's a lot we can still do about that. So you've talked a little bit about uh, teams there and team boosters. Let's talk a little bit more about that in detail, about high-performance teams as one of your big four support systems. There is so much talk about teams. So um, in, in the, the casual language of taking one for the team or uh, being the old favorite, a team player. <laughs> and of course, now everyone can be on a Microsoft team. So you can just, you can, if, you, if you're not on a team, you can be on a team, right? What's your take on the fundamental strength of a high-performance team? Where does that come from? So you've got a team, right? There's a, there's a group of individuals. If you, could, if you could boil it down to some of the key factors, before we start talking about whether it's a teaching team or a, a team in the construction industry or whatever industry it happens to be, what's, what's the secret sauce that makes it a high-performance team? Well, two things, three things quickly. Firstly, teams, anthropology, we can look at teams like the family, village, tribe idea. And so whether we're on Microsoft Teams or we belong to one whole team or um, whatever the jargon, um, there is this underlying definition and characteristics of what constitutes a team. And then in education, we have to make sure we don't confuse that with a thing called a group. So, uh, again, that's just there's a lot of little things that go wrong when when schools don't design their groups and teams properly. Um, But, yeah, coming back to what you're saying, regardless of all the industries, um, there's well, and again, teams is such a buzzword. Uh, If we start by understanding, I guess, two phrases that go around our industry, one is high performing teams and the other is high performance teams. And we liken that to the sprint and the marathon, where if you're a high-performing team, it's kind of like a footy team. And and, and the sports analogies are really good there because what you're trying to do is um, move the group all the way up to achieve a specific goal. um, And then it kind of slacks back off again until next season. And so the verb, if you like, um, and... (laughs) That model is not what a school's about. You know, that's like the the sprint idea where we've got an immediate objective and we have to sort all ourselves out and and go the distance and and win. 
Um, that is not a helpful model for schools um, because it's a continuous journey. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so that's where we move into the model that we use, which is called the high performance teams and framework, I'll address in a tick. But that's like the marathon. That's where what you're trying to do is build an underlying trait, an underlying enduring sequence of behaviours and systems um, and the team cycles through that activity cycle continuously and they're always optimised, kind of like your SEAL Team 6 idea. Um, they're just continuously ready and they deal with different challenges, of course, through the lifespan of the team. Um, but it's not designed to have an off-season. It's designed to be able to pace itself for the long term. So that would so, require well, that would require the same amount. I would suspect the same amount of buy-in from each person within the team. How do you deal with issues where the levels of buy-in in team members fluctuates, varies? Some people are just a bit off. They just they just don't see the same common vision. They don't have the same enthusiasm. Well, that's same- your high-performing teams or lack of high-performing behaviour problem, because it all hinges on the buy-in of the team member, right? So how do you solve that? In a high you, performance, well, in a high performance team, the solutions aren't found with dealing with the, the outlier team member that's just not, you know, it's got low morale and not with it. The solutions are about co-constructing the systems of the team with the team and then enabling the calendar, the timetable, the meetings, the tools, making the um, right thing to do the easiest thing to do. Um, And so uh, it's very hard to be an outlier if you've built a high performance team because the person themselves has had agency in the process um, and the system is geared to make that process the only process they can go in. Uh, so it's the, even if they're having a low time with their energy and morale, they're still able to operate at a very high level of performance because they're inside an activity cycle that just makes that happen. Right. And that's really different. Like I, when I'm listening to you, I, I think you're going back to the idea all these individuals reach up individually and somehow carry themselves and the team forwards. And, and that's back at the footy analogy. We're talking about a, a group of people uh, engaging in a system and then living inside a system that makes high performance the inevitable outcome. So the onus on them to turn up tip top every day is, is, is very low. Um, the onus on the system, the, the calendar being managed, the opportunities for the engagement, the tasking up at any given time is massive. And that's why in a high performance team's environment, so much of the energy is also then in how the school runs. Whereas in high performing teams, you go off to workshops and you have these inspirational things happen, or you're asked to navel gaze a lot about yourself. There's not a lot of weight on a system in a high performing team environment. There's a lot of weight on people having hard conversations and relationships. In a high performance team system, um, everything is about how do we do this as a team? What's going to go wrong? You know, counter disaster preparation. Uh, and so there's a lot less emphasis on my individual contribution at any given time. There's a lot more emphasis on my voice and my understanding in what we're agreeing to do and how we're going to go about doing it. And then what we'll do when it goes wrong. Let me see if I get this straight. The structure of the, the system comes before the load or the load that's taken by the system comes before the load that's taken by the individual. Absolutely, in a high-performance team system. And you can go back to, the, I guess, the military analogy um, where, you know, if the, if the equipment isn't there, if the resourcing isn't done, if the logistics aren't right, you just can't expect these really amazing people to, to get to that extraordinary level collectively. So we're moving a lot of the onus away from the people, but n- no more so than is humane. <laughs> like we're still yeah. expecting teachers to teach. We're still expecting yeah. leaders to lead. 
but we're solving something we can solve, which is how we run the thing, how we organize the thing. Do you see, do, do you get a sense of people expressing relief when they make that connection? As in, oh, absolutely. it's, it's not it's, all on me? Well, and that's the point of a high performance team. If anyone ever feels like it's all on me, um, they're over on that other camp. You know, they're thinking that um, they're being asked to somehow lift more weight than they're currently lifting or they, or they feel as though it's implied that they're not high performing as an individual or something. Uh, and, and you can't do that to people, particularly right now with the level of exhaustion or what we would call low capacity. Right. And so that's why we go back to the systems and culture of a school, your opening, which is the quote in the book, of course. The crux of all of this is about how the school runs, about its meeting timetables, about um, the, how it uses the available twilight professional development time slots it has, about how much time it provisions for teams to meet. And when they do meet, how it structures their agendas so the operational and the strategic stuff gets done. We've been doing a lot of longitudinal research on this now for six, seven years. And one of the most powerful and disturbing findings is the physical amount of time teachers in teams get to meet is the single largest predictor of collective efficacy or capacity. Just that alone. <laughs> so hang on. Although some teachers might say, oh, I just I have to go to another meeting. Can you make the yes. distinction there? So you're suggesting yeah, so that we're they, talking they... about a teaching team meeting, a very specific meeting with a very specific purpose. Every other meeting in our longitudinal research doesn't really count, doesn't really matter, and in many cases causes more trouble than it fixes. Right. So that so would be that would be the equivalent of what you might call meeting fatigue, where the meeting just yeah, yeah, doesn't doesn't have enough. It well, it, that's probably because the meeting doesn't have enough purpose or enough uh, enough of an agenda. Can you clarify that for me? Well, there's two things going on. One is how you run a meeting. Uh, and again, our work all these years is painstakingly reconstructing how different meetings work in schools so that people are engaged, active, talking about their hot issues. You know, the car park's quiet, the text messages are quiet because all the stuff that needs to be talked about does get talked about in the room. The other part of the puzzle, though, that's just one part of the puzzle. The other puzzle is who's in the room. And if we go back to this idea of teams and anthropology, we know that sort of five to seven people constitute the family in that anthropological model. Um, if we go back to the basic research about uh, how often teams should be meeting if they have a common customer, regardless of industry, um, we know that approximately one hour a week is sufficient. And obviously, Colin, that hinges on that one hour being used well, as yeah. you rightly point yeah. out. Now, schools industrially in Australia have one hour a week across all jurisdictions. Um, for teachers being mandatorily obligated to attend meetings after school, for example. So we're already, we don't have enough meeting time to satisfy the basic human research about the amount of time needed for these teams to be high performance. Right. So what we have to do then is work out how to trade, right? Um, we cut down staff meetings, we increase teaching team meetings, we cut down improvement groups or PLCs or anything that isn't the teaching team. We just trade off constantly and we replace those things with information and support and, and whatever else we have to do. But if we take away from that small group of teachers all focused on grade six kids or delivering science or whatever, if we take time off them, and take away their ability to support one another and push the envelope of quality teaching. If we don't give them that time, we're diminishing their cup three times faster. We're draining out their capacity. 
Now, look, your book's a great read, and you use some fairly colourful language in your description of teams that are working well. Things like uh, flourishing, great versus extraordinary. Uh, what's the magic? I speak with a lot of teachers that uh, rarely seem to have that language in their lexicon. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's, I guess that we're going back to the core of the work, right? Uh, historically, we haven't, um, and the birth of our work in this sector uh, for, you know, pretty much full time for seven years now, um, just this is all I do. Teams get spoken about in schools, but teams rarely actually work in the functional model that's necessary. And the functional model is not rocket science. And so if you've got people coming up through their careers or teachers who've been in the industry for a long time, as soon as you mention the word team itself, their eyes might roll up to the top of their head with a bit of a here we go expression on their face. And then you talk about high performing teams or high performance teams and, you know, they're coughing with an expletive (laughs) coming out of their mouth simultaneously. Uh, And to me, that's just all understandable. Let's face it, we have not done a good job um, building the sufficient conditions (laughs) building the structure and the way the school runs to allow these teams to feel the self-esteem and be excited about the challenge of SEAL Team 6. We, we haven't done that. And that's mm. us as school leaders and us as you know administrators of private and public school systems. Um, but we have the tools. That's the good news. We have, we have an hour a week. We have a, a table um, in, our, in the workbook related to that book you read that explains no matter which jurisdiction you're in Australia, just do this ticking exercise and you can quickly work out where the wiggle room is in how your timetable currently works and quickly increase the amount of teaching team time. Like what I love about this is, is it's, it's a known known. There are constraints that we know about which suddenly allows all of us to who love a problem to solve a rubik's cube we can all just get into this as school leaders and and middle leaders and start changing up how the school runs and we're talking about tiny tweaks we're not talking about you know um eye rolling team building crazy stuff we're just talking about (laughs) tiny tweaks well let's focus on that teacher who's listening to this thinking boy this really resonates with me i'm really interested in this but i'm also feeling a little bit uh, deflated, a little bit helpless to do anything about it. Uh, perhaps this teacher has even read your book and is really excited, doesn't know where to start, doesn't know what to do. Aside from reading your book, what should they do? Firstly, um, um, change begins with one person um, or uh, revolutions begin in the streets and, and all nice. those things. So like all it takes is one person to decide to try something out. And so if you're a teacher hearing this, uh, and we get this a lot, um, and you may or may not be able to engage your middle leaders or senior leaders on these ideas, let's talk about what's already in your control. You can already control or ask with permission with your colleagues to change up how your meeting runs. So if you go to our downloads button on the website, hptschools.com, you'll see a thing called the golden thread. And that's an example or template of every meeting in a school. There's only six kind of prototypes. You can, off your own bat, try to start changing up how the meeting runs, asking people to try something out with you. Um, And then you'll start that reverse or managing up cycle to start transforming the meeting culture of your school. You can, as a teacher, um, decide to do um, the pulse system within your team. We always do little free trials of that for a term or two. Um, And again, you just say, hey, guys, can we play around with this? Can we have permission to fail? Can we all agree this, this isn't floating our boat? We'll get rid of it. But could we try it? 
you can do these little 10 minute team boosters again on the YouTube channel. There's no passwords. Everything's already there. Mm. You can do a um, teamwork speed date. Uh, again, you can do a 90 day sprint. You can do um, feedback three by three. And all you have to do is ask your colleagues just to try this out for 10 minutes. Uh, this and, and then the you know the big one of course is what we call the platinum rule which we'll save for another time but you can do some really simple within 10 minutes kind of profiling of different communication patterns within the team and suddenly have aha moments about how you can just make it all a bit easier with one another when you're stressed and tired so yeah grab the book or the, again on the downloads button the, you don't have to buy it you can download the ebook for free but also hit us up. There's a whole bunch of things you can do with little inquiries, little experiments. Let's just try it out. So how do people do that? How do they get in touch with you to find out more? Let's say I yeah, really wanted absolutely. to reach out to you. Well, how, how would I reach out to you now and say, listen, I've read your book. I've, I've, I've downloaded the book. I've had a look at your YouTube thing. I'm really excited. I just, I just need that next level step. What next? Yeah, we're dealing with a, international, a teacher in an international school in Asia, uh, and she's exactly the, the situation you're describing. She's like, the light bulb's gone on. She can see the logic. She can also see it's not onerous. It's tiny tweaks. Uh, and so, yeah, hit us up. Um, if you send an inquiry form off the website, hptschools.com, that will come to me um, and I'll answer that. Uh, so, and, and, and I've had this lovely chat with this person. And in the end, we did a little quick uh, free Zoom session for 15 to 20 minutes with the middle leaders of this um, international school. Uh, we're just happy to help. Um, you know, the, the, the way our business works, of course, is um, once schools want to do this properly, you know, there's a role for us in the consulting or the software architecture of the pulse and how that tracks. And so, so that's all fine for us. Um, we're just happy to help schools get moving on this. And again, all our stuff is public domain. We have no copyright uh, and there are no passwords. Uh, and our YouTube channel, again, is just open access. So, so we're huge fans of people reaching out to us saying, hey, this or that gels with me, like yourself wanting to start in on well-being um, what would be a next step uh, myself danielle allison the senior sort of what we call the master trainers in our crew we'd just love to say hey try this out or why don't you play that or have you got five minutes when the team next meets here's a good thing to do great to speak with you pete i look forward to exploring more of your book in the future thank you so much you've been listening to central station if you're inspired by Pete's message and you think a friend or colleague would also be inspired, then please share this episode with them. For more information about Pete and his publications and YouTube channel, visit his website, hptschools.com, and you'll find that link in the notes for this episode. And for more great stories from educators around Australia and the world, make sure you subscribe to Central Station wherever you listen. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening.